1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America a member FDSE.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Today, the city of Alexandria sits on the Mediterranean coast in the north of Egypt, a bustling urban centre of more than 5 million people. But behind its modern face lies an ancient past. Almost 2,500 years ago, Alexander the Great arrived on Egypt's coastline with a wild vision and a radical dream. He would found a city bringing together people from all over the world, to live and work in harmony. Alexander dreamt of this city becoming a powerful global centre for knowledge, and his vision became a reality. On today's podcast, author and historian Islam Issa joins Rebecca Franks to talk about the birth of the first modern city.
4: Welcome to the History Extra podcast and thank you for joining me. For listeners who've never been to Alexandria in Egypt, and I include myself in that number, Could you paint the scene for us? If I were to stroll through the streets of this city today, what would it be like?
2: This is a city that's an urban metropolis, but it's on the beautiful Mediterranean coast. You'll hear loud waves, which Homer knew about millennia ago. You'll hear lots of car horns and motorbikes, and there will be hundreds of people around you around the bustling harbour, and there will be people enjoying their food and drink outdoors. Lots of cats roaming around your feet. There's a citadel at one end of the Corniche, or the promenade, and the promenade is about 13 miles, and it has many lanes, and then the city goes inwards from the coast, and of late the city has been building upwards. You'd also find some remnants of the ancient past cemeteries and catacombs the erroneously named Pompeii's pillar so there are some signs of the past but often the sheer breadth of the past is is conspicuously absent i'd probably add that that question's a great question because people do venture to egypt and they do venture to the mediterranean and they do go to ancient capitals like athens and rome and istanbul but not many people go to Alexandria.
4: Do you have a sense of why that might be?
2: I think part of it is the fact that the past isn't as clearly visible there. If you want to see the Ptolemaic artefacts from the first few centuries, most of those are under the city. It's hard to excavate them because there's a metropolis above them, and many of the artefacts are under the water, in the depths of the sea. It's estimated that there's around 1% of the artefacts been discovered under the water. So lots of the ancient cities missing. There's also the fact the city kind of erases itself as one generation moves to another. Because Alexandria was so sought after, it's part of the Macedonian empire of Alexander the Great, then the Ptolemaic empire, then the Roman empire. For periods it's Persian, and then it's Ottoman, Muslim, Ottoman, French, British. With each of those There are subcategories, so when it becomes Muslim, there are the Mamluks and the Abbasids and the Fatimids. Each of those has their own architecture, their own economic strategy, and they kind of erase some of what came before it. So rather than having a melting pot of different architecture, it's kind of just erased and something new is built in its place.
4: So if what we see now is this modern metropolis, but beneath it there is this city with ancient roots or the memory of the city with ancient roots, That city had a very definite starting point because, as you say, dreamt up by Alexander the Great almost two and a half thousand years ago. What would have a visitor to this location found back then and and why did Alexander pick it for a place to build a city?
2: Alexander was the student of Aristotle and he learnt under Aristotle the poetry of Homer. And Homer writes about this location. It's a location that's in the ancient Greek consciousness, the island of Pharos from the Odyssey. And we have to remember that Homer isn't just a poet at that time. He's actually regarded in some ways to be history. And in the absence of a single scripture, lots of his work is taken to have theological importance. So when Alexander reads about this location, legend has it, he dreams about it as well. He dreams of a venerable man coming to him in his sleep and telling him about an island where loud the billows roar, They call it on the Egyptian shore and Plutarch writes that he ventures there immediately. So that's why Alexander went there, according to the founding myth. When he arrives, what would we see? I think something of an anticlimax. It's an island, Pharos, a small island, quite insignificant, a limestone outcrop that's essentially uninhabited. Opposite it on the Mediterranean coast are a series of small fishing villages nothing at all extravagant or fantastic, and Alexander sees the potential for a number of reasons. First is the fact of the location, it's at the intersection of three continents, and as somebody whose aim is essentially to dominate the world, that's very useful. He also sees that it's got access to water, but that's not just the Mediterranean. That's also the canal network that was built by the ancient Egyptians nearby. The Nile Delta is close enough. The Nile Delta for Alexandria or for that location was perfect because the Nile risks either flooding or drying and neither of those would affect that location. And then the secret was a lake southwards. So behind those fishing villages, there was a lake, Lake Mariotis, where there were some people who, who also settled there. So it had huge potential, both in terms of the location and the access to water.
3: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com historyextra History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com historyextra History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do.
4: He had an ambitious vision for his city. What was that vision? What was his design and plans for it?
2: Well, legend has it that as soon as he arrives in his ecstasy and excitement, he gets down onto his knees and begins scribbling the plan for the city on the sand. And that plan has everything. It has the markets, the squares, the temples, the palaces, the houses, wide roads that can accommodate many chariots, but it also has a shrine for the muses. So that will become a library. And his excitement about this, this place is largely to do with his plans for world domination and the economic prosperity that it can provide him. So Egypt is already famous. Egypt is already a place of prestige. It has knowledge and it has an infrastructure and pharaohs with a long history. I mean, bear in mind, Alexander arrives halfway in the timeline between us and the Great Pyramids of Giza. That's how long Egypt had stood. And so he has that ambition that if he has this place north of Egypt, he has access to the continents, access to the wheat, to feed his army, access to slaves from further south. There's lots of potential to expand his operation as he wants to go eastwards. And so that's where Alexander realizes that This is a place where if he brings people from far and wide to create a city, there can be some economic and military prosperity as a result.
4: A vision is one thing. How do you turn that into reality? How did he return it into reality?
2: First of all, it's a radical vision. At the time, someone like Alexander would be expected to Hellenize rather than harmonize. And Alexander's idea is actually to bring people from far and wide to this city. Alexandria isn't organically developed like most cities. It's not born out of war. It's not born out of a geographical division. It's born out of an egotistical vision. And that vision requires people. You don't have a city without a population. And so immediately, people are invited from other parts of Egypt, from around the Mediterranean, from Greece. We know that some Romans arrive, some Levantines arrive. Even some Indians, Nubians, all of these people are invited to Alexandria and given incentives of employment and a place to live. And perhaps most significantly at this moment in time, the Jews from what would have been called the Holy Land are invited in numbers, promised that they would have freedom of worship, that they would be able to build synagogues and that they would be exempt from tax. And Jews arrive in huge numbers as well. But that is one way of enacting that vision. But the vision itself is striking, that you bring people from all around the region to live together in perceived or relative harmony, and that that can create economic prosperity. And indeed, it does. The other way of doing it is through the architecture or through the building. So Dinocrates is the greatest architect of this period, and he's entrusted with building Alexandria. He designs it based on many principles, such as the way that the promenade that we still have today runs across the Mediterranean coast at an angle that allows a a welcome sea breeze in for the inhabitants of the city. That's just one example. The other, which is ascribed to Alexander, is building a causeway. That causeway links this mythical legendary island of Pharos to the main coast, and that is where the city is founded.
4: You mentioned that there are incentives for people to come to the city, there was work there. What were the other attractions and how did people kind of hear of it? How did they know what they were going to find when they got there? Was it a great leap of faith for people?
2: People knew that there were jobs in construction, for example. They also knew that there was a population that was getting richer and wealthier there as a result of land ownership, as a result of construction. So that in itself created space for people to become artisans and sell their art, for example. There was a harbour. The harbour was one of the busiest harbours in the region and soon became the busiest harbour in the region. By building that causeway, Alexander created two harbours, one on either side of it. So ships were docking in and out. That meant that people also arrived in Alexandria as a result of the trade they were carrying out and opted to stay. So lots of different jobs and the promise, above all, of being able to be free, of being able to worship whatever they wanted to worship and stick with the culture that they want to stick with. Of course, theory and practice aren't always going hand in hand, but that was the idea and the vision behind Alexandria in its early days.
4: Yeah, I was curious about that aspect of the multiculturalism, which is clearly a really important part of the vision, and then the reality of it. How multicultural was the city in its heyday, and how important was that for its success?
2: In its heyday, it was extremely multicultural. There were people from all around the region, from east and west, and they were speaking different languages, worshipping different gods. As time progressed, they began to speak common Greek, which is an Alexandrian dialect of Greek, develops in Alexandria. And to think that that is the, if eventually the language of the Bible, it's that influential. There's also no ghettoization in Alexandria for the first three and a half centuries or so. There's no evidence of that. And then unfortunately, it does begin to, to take place perhaps after about four centuries. So yes, it was, it was a diverse and multicultural society, not without its issues, but the general vision did work.
4: And you've told us what the city is like today. What would that ancient city have been like? What could you expect to see and hear and smell? What was it like on a day-to-day basis?
2: Day to day, this is a city that's full of big roads, wide roads. It's famed for its wide roads. There are colonnades and there are pillars and statues at every corner. There are palaces and squares and trees lining up the roads. It's a wealthy city. You can tell it's a wealthy city. And we have reports from early historians about the smell, that it's a perfumed city. Alexander and Ptolemy, when they went to Persia, The first thing they did was actually go to the the perfumery. And so lots of these perfumes were brought back to Alexandria and invested in in the city. So it's a very lush and grand city. But it's also got the tallest man-made building in the world at that time, in the Pharos Lighthouse. So people arriving to the city would have been in awe of the size of this lighthouse, the symbolism of this lighthouse. Yes, it was there to create light through its fire, the furnace there and the mirrors for the sailors. But it was really a a show of power, this lighthouse, to say this is a leading city. So it's a city that very much wants to show off its power. And I write about this being the kind of Alexandrian dream. And the, the lighthouse, as they arrive being something of Lady Liberty, that they are arriving to a city of the future.
4: I was curious to know more about the lighthouse, in fact. When was it built and what happened to it?
2: The lighthouse is built relatively early on in Alexandria's history. So the city is founded around 331 BC by Alexander. Ptolemy I, his friend and successor, is the one who really constructs Alexandria. So it's envisioned by Alexander, but constructed by Ptolemy I. And so Ptolemy I is thought to have began construction in the first couple of decades of the third century BC, and possibly finished by his son, Ptolemy II. The lighthouse is probably a big state endeavor that takes something like a 10th of their treasury. And like I said, it's a symbol of power. It's not just to serve practical purposes. As for what happens to the lighthouse, well, it undergoes a kind of steady decline. I don't think there's a single moment when we can say the lighthouse has disappeared. And in fact, today, if you go, you will see the remains of the lighthouse where the citadel is. So over centuries, it does seem to survive at least a millennium. And we know that it survives perhaps even longer. So I'd say the lighthouse remains intact from what I've seen or from my research for about seven centuries and then it survives in a damaged form, maybe for for 17. It withstands earthquakes and floods and wars, but slowly but surely, its uh, stones and rocks fall into the depths of the ocean.
4: It must have been an incredible feat of engineering for it to last that long.
2: Yes, I mean, this lighthouse is over 100 metres. It's something previously unheard of. It's the three-tiered lighthouse. It's made of reflective white limestone. And it's got this, at the top, this furnace with mirrors as well. And it really is a feat of engineering at the time and surely today. And that's the reason it's an ancient wonder and still very much a part of Alexandrian consciousness. People still know and are proud in Alexandria that there was once this great lighthouse here.
4: And in terms of the other landmarks in the city, you mentioned there the Great Library of Alexandria and and the museum complex. Could you tell us about those and what they represented and what role they played in the city?
2: Yes, as I said, Alexander is said to have scribbled this shrine to the muses. It's a beautiful little phrase, shrine to the muses. It becomes museum, but also a shrine to the books when he designed the city. But I think we take a step back and think about the way in which this was a radical vision in the same way as there was a radical vision to bring together people from all around the the region. This one was really that knowledge equals power, that by gathering and being the guardians of knowledge, the Ptolemies could have power, soft power, perhaps. And then the museum, which was adjacent, it's a museum complex that has a library and a research centre. The museum is adjacent to the library. Here they could create knowledge and disseminate knowledge. So they're all forms of soft power, The person who founded the library or who was given the task of founding the library, Demetrius, was tasked, if you like, the job description was to gather every book in the world, all the books in the world. It's a seemingly impossible task, and they do a a fine job of trying to accomplish that task. The second librarian is quoted as, as saying there are half a million scrolls in the library. So it's by far the biggest collection of published works to date at that time. The museum next door then researches those books and and scholars are uh, given stipends, and food and drink and accommodation in order to philosophise and debate and invent in Alexandria.
4: Presumably, it wasn't an easy task to collect that number of books. What were the ways they went about doing that? How did they guard their knowledge?
2: What started as as something of a, a noble task became something of an obsession. So... At first, they use their contacts, Demetrius was the governor of Athens and, and he sought asylum, the chief of the library then. So they use their contacts, they try to write to other libraries to take books that aren't needed, that they could, that they could borrow and so on. The Ptolemies, for Ptolemy II, Ptolemy III, they write to other heads of state asking for their books. Often they ask to borrow them and they pay huge deposits. There's an an example where they take the work of the Greek tragedians from Athens uh, for the equivalent deposit of about £300,000 today and they simply don't return it. They keep it. So it became a kind of process where they had to think whether that foreign relation was more important or the books. So that that was one way of doing it. Then there became other tactics. So policies, really. So ships that docked into Alexandria's harbour, for example, would be searched, not for contraband, but for books. If a book was found, it was immediately confiscated. When it's confiscated, it's then copied in the library, and in all likelihood, it was the copy that was going back to the owner. You weren't allowed to take an original book out of Alexandria, you'd be searched on your way out. Then when other libraries began to develop, like in Pergamon, there was a ban on exporting papyrus. So that embargo was to stop other libraries from rivaling Alexandria. That's where we get the the start of parchment instead of papyrus. And then you had all sorts of issues as well as a result, because if you're collecting every book in the world, that's the opposite of being selective. So anyone who could write anything half decent uh, would write it and sell it to the library. There was a lot of piracy, people claiming to have books by big writers There were those who claimed to have listened to big writers talk and wrote what they said or pretended to. So there were all sorts of issues in the black market because for the first time, books became a commodity and they became a valuable commodity.
4: It's easy to talk about the city almost in idealistic terms. But what were the darker sides of ancient Alexandria? What was the cost of this city coming into being?
2: Alexandria has lots of moments in its history that are entirely tragic and they're usually a result of that vision of diversity really falling to pieces and and not working. We mentioned, for example, the scholars who come in and get a stipend and, and are exempt from tax. Well, that annoys a lot of people who wonder why these people are coming from foreign lands to earn money without paying tax and and receive this kind of salary. The librarians doubled as royal tutors and lived in the palace and earned massive salaries. So there's a sceptical poem from the time that writes about, rather than the shrine of muses, the cage of muses. These are people who are towing this state line. So there are those kinds of issues, purely economic. There are also suspicions about different groups. So there are suspicions we see about what is going on in synagogues, for example. And that results in a tragic event in 38 CE, the first recorded pogrom, probably. So we have those kinds of tensions. And then when with the rise of Christianity, so-called paganism is really quashed and the temples are turned to churches and so on. So over time, religious differences begin to show and a lack of tolerance continues. So there's, there's the economic, there's the religious, there's also the political, which is that uh, different people supported different heirs to the throne at different times, for example, showed their loyalties to different people. And Alexandria became famous as a place that had a kind of mob culture in the sense that if they didn't like a monarch or somebody who is in a position of power, the mob would just take them to the stadium and lynch them, for example. So there's, there's a lot of violence that begins to develop in Alexandria's history, too.
4: Alexander came up with the idea for the city, but he didn't ever get to see it himself.
2: Alexander's overexcited, one could say, and he moves on to his next adventure. He wants to move eastwards, so he leaves Alexandria after the design and and leaves people in charge. He goes southwards to an oracle where he wants to find out if he's got divine parentage, and then obviously he wants to carry on eastwards towards Persia and so on. And he ends up dying in Babylon just a few years later having never seen a building rise in the city.
4: In the podcast so far, we've really focused on the birth of Alexandria, but its history obviously spans millennia. What have been the major milestones and turning points in its lifetime since?
2: I think it's just the change of hands, isn't it? We focused on the early history for a reason, actually, because that's what makes it so attractive. It's not just its location. It's also a place that's got knowledge, that's developing itself as a capital of knowledge, a capital of astronomy and astrology and literature and medicine and everything else. And also a place that's got a strong army and a place that has a bustling harbour and is an economic hub, almost a world trade centre. So it makes complete sense for people to be attracted to this location. By people, I mean empires. And that's what happens with the Romans. The Roman, that's a huge, huge change to Alexandria is when Julius Caesar arrives And eventually Octavian, or Augustus, takes over. And that marks the turn, actually, of Rome moving from a republic to an empire. It's when Alexandria is occupied. And and actually, that's why the month was changed to August, in, in honor of the day that Augustus took over Alexandria. So that's a really important moment in Alexandria's history, because with Cleopatra VII, the famous Cleopatra's death, it's the end of the Ptolemaic dynasty. So that's the dynasty that followed Alexander. So that's a key moment. As we move on, the rise of Christianity is another absolutely key occurrence, because Christians are attracted initially to this kind of liberal city. It's still got that reputation as a liberal city. And as a result, they begin to develop the the faith there in different ways and learn from the Jewish community about the ideas of allegory and debate and so on. So with that as well comes the end of the Egyptian religions, really, because they decline until the temples all but disappear. So that's another key moment. And then we have the Islamic annexation of of Egypt as well, when this new group from the Arabian Peninsula expands and takes Egypt and then eventually takes Alexandria. and, And that begins another key chapter in the city's life. So I mean, we could keep going, but I think essentially Alexandria's, that the important events in Alexandria's history seem to be massive events where it's a change of hands, the rulers are changing.
4: In writing your biography of the city, what have been
2: the discoveries for
4: you? What surprised you?
2: Some things are quite general, like I've been surprised or taken aback by how history repeats itself just in different ways. So the same things seem to happen over and over but they just take a different form. And we see that even today. So the simplest example of that is the plagues. Every few centuries, there's a huge plague. And so I almost feel naive for being surprised that we had a pandemic. So that the fact that history repeats itself, I think for me, this book was also a kind of journey of personal discovery in a way because of my heritage. So I write It's actually in the Acknowledgements, but I write about this idea of trying to find Ancestor the Great, not Alexander the Great. So that first ancestor of mine who moved to that part of the world, I I ultimately failed in my quest to find Ancestor the Great. But I learnt a lot about my grandparents and great-grandparents and family history and some of the reasons that they would have been attracted to that place or to stay in that place and quite what that link with the space means to me as well.
0: That was Islam Issa, Whose new book, Alexandria: The City That Changed the World, is out now, published by Sceptre. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer.